Hi everybody, thank you very much for downloading our podcast. Um, this is to listeners of Culturally Fixated and to Leeds Book Club because we have a very multi-talented guest with us tonight. Um, in fact, we have the queen of the CNC and a genuine geek goddess, uh, General Susan Ivanova herself, Claudia Christian. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Wow, what an introduction. <laughs> I don't know if I can live up to that. <laughs> might as well put queen of the universe in there. <laughs> well, you know, there are, you have a lot of fans and I'm not going against any of them who say that you are, you know? <laughs> No, no, I'm a, I'm a sci-fi fan. Special, put it that way. Well, I'm, I'm a sci-fi fan to the core, and it began when I was very little, working my way through, you know, Isaac Asimov and, and Robert Silverberg, and this, yeah. you know, they, they always featured prominent female characters, which was brilliant for me as a little girl reading them, thinking I'm not just going to be the three-breasted alien woman from Total Recall or something, you know. Um, but I, I, it was, it's was so amazing to be able to turn on the television and see people like that, you know, like in Star Trek and 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 it, sci-fi seemed to be that area where it was considered completely acceptable, in fact necessary, you needed to demonstrate in the future that there was equality or, you know, demonstrate that there wasn't and it was a bad thing and, and in mainstream television it was like, yeah, we'll continue to make them secretaries and have them bring us coffee on screen, you know, so... Absolutely. genuinely going to have a massive geek out session with you about Babylon 5 <laughs> so I think well but I actually think it's it's more fair to you your career in general if we start with other things and I looked up a couple of other topics because I thought okay I know I can talk about Babylon 5 for hours but presumably you know after this much time you you, you would like to talk about some of your other things I couldn't get over what I found you speak three languages other than English fluently and are happy to act in them you play the piano and the guitar you called yourself a not very good singer. I wouldn't agree with that at all. And I went and listened to the tracks <laughs> online and stuff, you know. Um, you definitely had a very Madonna vibe going through the 90s, which oh, is... <laughs> uh, well, that's flattering. And, and by the way, I, I, I can get by in, in three languages, but I'm not, I, I do not call myself fluent. That's probably some publicist from the 90s that, that said that. And I'm, I'm probably, um, I'm a great swimmer. <laughs> 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 I'm an excellent chef, but uh, I don't. I don't consider myself um, uh, an, an an expert really at anything at this point in my life. I, I I'm humbled to be able to do what I love, which is write books, make you know uh, movies, and now help people. So it's it's you know it's it. 
I, I think all of the stuff that people read on, on the internet, sometimes it's embarrassing because <laughs> it sounds like I'm this uber perfect woman. <laughs> you do come across a little bit like a renaissance woman and that's before yeah. we even touch on your writing career, the fact that you're, you're making a documentary, you're a director as well as a, a, a screenwriter, you know, it's a little intimidating. <laughs> no. It just means that I didn't, I wasn't getting enough acting gigs to <laughs> No, it's called diversification. You have, one has to diversify, especially in the profession that I'm in. So I, luckily, because I'm, I'm really not good at maths or science or anything like that, I find that anything creative was what I was drawn to. So when you say, yeah, okay, I wrote some books, I, I did this, you know, I directed some television or whatever, it's because I wanted to stay busy. And I wasn't always employed as in, uh, in my, what used to be my favorite field, which was acting. Yeah. Um, so I think one learns to, to find things to do um, mm. and a way to make a living. I mean, I, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, did I think that I would be a landlord, author, documentary <laughs> filmmaker in 2013, I'd be like, wait a minute, no, I'm supposed to be starring in a television series, <laughs> you know, but so, so you don't know, I mean, you don't know what life pans out for you, but mm -hmm. you have to make the best of it, and you have to keep changing, it's like a snake on sand, you know, find yeah. the cool spot, um, and that's what I've been doing for, luckily, you know, uh, I've, I've been able to do the things I love for 30 years, but but it does change. It doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, if you if you love one thing, you have to stay on that path because sometimes mm -hmm. life dictates that that path isn't going to pay you, so you can't, you know. Yeah. So you have to do other things. And, so. But but it's all, I mean, look at Ron Howard, who started life out as yeah. an actor and is now such a prominent... I did a film with him, Clean and Sober. Yeah. Oh, well... He's a lovely man. He's a lovely, lovely, lovely man. And he deserves all the success that he got. Yeah, he was a, he was a child star. Yeah. Um, and But he, he found in later life a focus that has kept him going you know professionally Absolutely. and creatively yeah. Yeah. you know for for such a long time so often they i mean what was that you remember that baz lorman song that came out the everybody's free to wear sunscreen and he said that some of the most interesting people that he knew at 20 didn't want, know what they wanted to do with their lives some of the most interesting people he ever met didn't know at 40 and i've always thought that's you know that's how to approach it every year yeah. brings a new challenge you know well it's interesting i i, I sat on, uh, on a plane next to a woman who was 60 and this is the first time i came out to england i was moving country and it was 2005 i think i was about to do star hike uh in bristol and i remember this sitting next to this woman and i said you know i'm really i'm scared you know i'm selling my house in la and i'm moving to a country she said darling I was a psychotherapist, and then I became a sex therapist, then I became a tennis pro, and now I just am married. <laughs> wow, here's this, you know, this is a woman who's uh, lived four lives, and she was 16. She said, I'm starting this one anew because I never thought it would satisfy me. And I thought, wow, okay, so, you know, it, it's, every decade brings a new new promise or a new failure or a new uh, hope or whatever it is but you gotta hang in there um the first thing that i ever saw you in was actually freaks and geeks ah that's yeah that was lovely uh gloria Haverchuk. that was it i played martin Starr's mom i did only a couple of episodes but it was uh it was a really great experience judd apatow of course went on to become an incredibly successful director producer 
who hasn't put me in any of his features. Not that I'm bitter about that. No, the but, bastard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, did the, uh, I did the Vanity Fair shoot um, last year, and I walked right up to him, and I said, so how come I'm the only one from Freaks and Freaks in a movie? A subtle party of one. And he looked at me, and he was like, just speechless and I thought wow Claudia you because you're scary and you march up to me and say weird things <laughs> God, it's just I have no filter I have to I have to go out and buy one well I mean that is something that comes across so much in uh, in your autobiography and um, Babylon confidential love sex and what is it what's the tag tagline for it Addiction. Love, sex, and addiction. That's kind of like the three things you're not supposed to, along with God, that's like the three things you're not supposed to bring up in a pub. Do you know what I mean? Well, uh, if, you're, if you're going to be, first of all, if you have the cheek to write a memoir at the age of 45, which is how old I was when I started it, um, then you better have something important to say. And hmm. also, if you're going to do that, then you better be honest. And if you're going to pretend to be able to help people, yeah. then you had better be absolutely 100% dead honest. And, and I decided either I'm going to come clean and I'm going to, I'm going to show the ugly in the middle and the, you know, mm. all the best and worst, mm. or I'm not going to write it at all. And also, um, how am I going to approach somebody who I am really, really keen to help if I'm not honest about what I went through, yeah, because they're not going to be able to be honest with me. And I think the thing that has helped so, uh, just so much, is the fact that I was so blunt in in my book that mm. now people feel free to come to me and say, "Look, I'm sneaking alcohol. I'm doing this. I'm I'm yeah. lying to my mate. I'm you know, my partner. I'm, I'm having you know, my children are affected. I mean, they're really being incredibly honest with me because I was honest with them. Yeah. So it seems more like a, a an open relationship per se, and it's actually made me closer not only to my fans who it's it's ironic because most sci-fi and genre fans aren't addicts. They're addicted to food and sci-fi conventions. Yeah. <laughs> alcohol or drugs so what I'm finding is is that they tell that their friends who tell family members and so on and so forth and I've, I've put about a hundred and something between in America it's about 50 plus and then all around the world it's about a hundred plus people on the Sinclair method so mm. um, all of these people I, I, I keep in touch with mm. and that's really become my focus and in getting back to the book if I wasn't honest in that book then I would work. not have I, I, I would not be able to help these people right now because they needed to understand that I was not I was not pretending that this was easy for me. Mm. I wasn't I wasn't pulling any punches mm. as far as oh look what I you know oh I got over it. No, I didn't get over anything. You know, I went through hell and I came out the other yeah. end because I found something that worked for me, but I failed at every other traditional attempt. Yeah. And, you know, they call it failure, but I call, call it, you know, the, the, the search. No, I, I mean, so, you know, the perseverance comes through so much. I mean, I, w I was sort of half saying it to you earlier. I think it, you're, you're, your autobiography, it reads a little bit like a fairy tale. I, I, I likened it um, when I was describing it to somebody, uh, to The Wizard of Oz. It begins with your life in Kansas, which was your life growing up, where you had some really painful experiences, including the loss of your brother, but also a, a graphically violent, um, you know, sex attack. 
Um, then we move to the Technicolor stage, which is when you break free, you go and you pursue acting. And the way you talk about your love for the craft, it does seem as though it's a a, a relationship. When you invest in it, it, it gives back to you. And, and there were times in your life where you were able to sort of you know, take a bit of time and give yourself other activities, but it's something that you keep crawling back to and, and it's always there to embrace you. And that was, it was really exciting to read that, to read about that sort of passion about for anything. And then we sort of get to the real world bit where the facade cracks a little bit and realities such as the fact that you were drinking to excess, to the detriment of your health and, and it was impacting on your relationships. And it, 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 it it was sort of staggering to move from one, you know, from to, to think about one phase of your life that was so almost butterfly colourful that, that this had happened. But your perseverance, the fact that you kept trying and you found this method that seems to have just transformed you. It's it's really it's a very inspirational, you know, but painful I like, journey. I like, I, I like the way you your analogy to the Wizard of Oz. That's interesting. I never thought about that, but but it it, it is true because my childhood was in black and white and then there was that period of everything falling into place mm -hmm. and I and I say to people now I don't know how I could start today and work as much as I did because the industry was different when I started when I started in 1983 it was six of us girls and we competed with each other I mean it was literally such a tiny pond yeah and because we were the ones that were good or that we looked a certain way or would and you know we, we, we'd say oh she got it oh I got it or you know, we, we would all, we would know who got the gigs because mm. we would, you know, it was, you saw the same people at auditions and you had a decent agent and you worked all the time. I mean, I worked all the time. I got my first job when I was 18 years old and I never stopped working until I was in my thirties, early thirties. Mm. So for a good, you know, I had a good 15 year run or, you know, and nothing really bad happened to me until my late 30s when this when this started to occur I, I, I realized that you know I, I couldn't control something in my life which was weird because I'm a control freak I mean I'm disciplined I, I love my life I'm a happy person so why would this happen to me yeah um, genetically of course I had the predisposition both of my grandfathers you know were um, alcoholics later in life same age almost as me and binge drinkers so it 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 did correlate, and, and I, I have a brother who's an addict, so it, I, I got it, but I didn't get it. You yeah. know, it doesn't really sink in. It doesn't sink in because it's you, and you're strong, and you love yourself. So mm. you, you don't understand why you can't handle yeah. you know, anything like this. And addiction is a very strange thing. I mean, I've talked to bulimics. I've talked to self-harmers. I've talked to anorexics, uh, opiate addicts. I mean, a, a myriad of people who don't understand what is taking over their body and what what they don't understand is that that the learned behavior of addiction is something that can be undone and i yeah. i knew that in the back of my head i knew that i wanted to be normal i didn't mm. want to be somebody who was going to a meeting every day for the rest of my life i didn't want to be yeah. somebody who who relied upon prayer i have a very strong connection to my spirit mm. life but I didn't feel that that was a solution. I come from a family of doctors, of scientists. I wanted a, a physiological, a, a, a medical solution. Mm. And I wanted to be the person I was before. And that's what took me on this journey. And it, it's been an extraordinary journey. But it was, it, you know, relatively, when you're talking about people, I mean, you're talking about the Anthony Hopkins of the world who've been sober for 30 years or struggled for 25 years. Mine was a relatively 
in the scope of things, it was a pretty small part of my life, but it was still, I consider it a waste of eight to ten years of my life. Just pretty big. Terrifying to think, like when you put yeah. it in those sort of well, terms. Well, when you put it's... it in that, that's, if you look at it right now, that's, that's, that's about a fifth of my life, mm. you know, um, that I feel, uh, had I known about this, in the very beginning of my problem, I could have saved that, that period of time. Yeah. On the other hand, I wouldn't be the person I am today helping exactly. people had I not gone through Yeah, and I mean, I know that I, I, in, the, in the book you're very clear about what um, the Sinclair method, uh, would, I think naltrexone and um, nalmefer are the, the two that it's, are used. naltrexone, nalmefine, and naloxone. Oh, and naloxone. In the, U- in the UK now, they have a thing called um, uh, Selincro. And Selincro is actually nalmefine, which you can take if you have liver damage. In the US, they mostly prescribe naltrexone. Mm. They're all opiate blockers. They're incredibly innocuous. They were, um, they're very low-grade, declassified prescriptions. In other words, you could ease, more easily OD on aspirin. Than uh, you could on... Pa- paracetamol, yeah. whatever it's called in this country. Than you could on on uh, one of these opiate blockers. They've been used for everything from multiple sclerosis to, um, you know, in, in very low doses, they use them for neurological disorders. They, mostly they were used to bring heroin addicts out of overdose. Overdose, yeah. Yeah, so, so this is, a, like I said, it's an incredibly safe drug. It's a non-addicting drug. Mm. The side effects are incredibly minimal. Mm. And it really is the answer to this billion-dollar, multi-multi-life lost issue yeah. in, in, all over the world. I mean, we're talking about um, one of the most costly issues, health issues in the world. And um, in the UK right now, the binging has become so excessive. So they're really selling um, the Sinclair method right now in the form of Selincro as the anti-binge medication. Because it, if you pay a dollar or a pound in this country for a pill and you pay five pounds for a pint or four, three pounds for a pint, yeah. what they're saying is we'll help you cut down. Yeah. And that makes it more palatable than saying to somebody, you know, I'm going to cure you. Yeah. So, so the whole point of this is saying, look, uh, I, I want you to help, uh, I want to help you get your alcohol drinking under control. Mm. And that's the difference between this and the and the absolute um, 100% sobriety of abstinence and rehab. And, and, you know, we don't even have the time to discuss all this, but that puts you into alcohol deprivation and you're yeah. talking about something that doesn't help the obsession and the compulsion of addiction. Mm. And this actually undoes it in the brain. So you could actually call it a... a pharmacological extinction which is what they refer to it as um which is what occurs after three to four months when you're on the Sinclair method it basically if if what I was reading was correct Mm -hmm. it rewires your brain back to how it should be exactly so that if you choose to you can abstain completely but if you go back to being as a, a drinker rather than Normal. an alcoholic or Absolutely. a former drinker it, it's like it just you, you know it's obviously it's not a magic pill you know and it's well you have to stay on it that's why this is the difference it's just like a diabetic stays on insulin or just like anybody stays on their medication mm. um if you go off of it mm. uh, let's say you don't take your antibiotics you're going to get relapse again yeah. so it's 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 a relapse thing you you will relearn the learned behavior mm. it is a learned behavior and it really it's puts the so. it really puts the emphasis on alcoholism as a medical problem as in like why why should we presume as people have done for so long that if you want to give up it's a matter of willpower oh 
when if we recognize that people are addicts there, yeah. then of course the insulin ref you know the insulin analogy is even more apt because you're basically just suggesting that you're putting somebody on a lifelong course of medication which we do all the time well think of it this way does somebody walk into a pub at the age of uh, 20 have their first drink and turn into an alcoholic no yeah. It's a learned behavior. The, mm. the, what happens in addicts is that your endorphins are, uh, the, the, the rush is so much more strengthened. Mm. Um, and when those endorphins are released and they hit that opiate uh, you know, receptor and they hang there, they strengthen that neural pathway much mm. stronger than the average person would, the normal person would. So yeah. an addict, their neural pathways get strengthened, 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 and all these things are firing. All these endorphins are firing. Um, so they want, they, that's when you get the compulsion to want more and more and more. And if anyone understands that, if they look at brain scans and they look at the before and after pictures of somebody on the Sinclair method before mm. and after, they will understand that it literally undoes what wasn't there before. Yeah. So I'm very, very hesitant about saying the words disease or cure or even alcoholism mm. because I, I think that it, it's, it's a learned behavior. The more you drink, the more you become an addict. Yeah. Same thing with cocaine or opiates or anything else or binge eaters. The more you do it, the more your body craves it. Mm. Uh, fat, sugar, all of these things. Yeah. Yeah. And it's ironic that the same endorphins that you're releasing when you cuddle a baby or when you uh, eat spicy food is also the same or when you gamble mm. or if you're a sex addict. It's the same thing. And that's, it's a compulsion to make you want more and more and more. What this does, this opiate blocker does, is it basically meets that, those endorphins and it blocks them from mm. firing. So you can still get drunk, you can still enjoy a glass of wine, mm. but you don't want to get drunk. You don't, you're not the last man standing at the bar. Yeah. You know, but, but you can still be the normal person having a glass of wine mm. or a couple of drinks or whatever. Or 48% or more, actually we're finding, um, go completely sober. Yeah. So... And we're not telling you to go sober, but... That's what people can that, choose to do, but, and it's a choice but, but, returned yeah, to them. It's not even... It's, it's, it's actually beyond choice. It is, is a lot of people that are in the Sinclair Method simply lose all desire to drink. Mm. And that's about, that's almost 50%. Mm. Which, I that's mean... That's a pretty high statistic. That's, that's incredibly it, high. It also has a... a Long-term-wise, it has an 80% long-term success rate. And anything else, like AA and rehab, can barely claim 10 percent yeah so we're talking about the best treatment worldwide and, it, and the fact that it's not known is just it, it, it to me it's it's like uh it would be as if there was a cure for cancer out there and, and nobody's no telling that yeah yeah because, well because you um, kill, you know millions and millions of people every year we i mean you're hoping to change that you've become the ambassador or or one of them for the c3 foundation and i believe there's a documentary in the works Yes, I started the uh, C3 Foundation because I wanted to um, give people information that they could download and bring to their doctors and uh, just to heighten awareness of the Sinclair Method. And our first project is this documentary. So I'm in London right now and we're going to be filming Dr. Roy Escapa who wrote The Cure for Alcoholism. And um, uh, really, really thrilling for me is then we're going to Helsinki and I get to meet Dr. David Sinclair, the man who saved my life. So I'm incredibly excited Will this be your that. first time to, uh, to meet I've him? Never, I've never met Dr. Sinclair. I've met Escapa a few times. Um, oh, wow, that's going to be... Roy and I have a very good friendship. Um, 
um, and we have the same publisher for our books, but no, I've never met Dr. Sinclair, and I'm just absolutely Well, that, I mean, that's, that's going to be surreal, and I yeah. say that aware of the fact that you're practically Forrest Gump. Your autobiography <laughs> just is just littered with very casual references in many cases to really significant people who've done these amazing things and you were just like oh hey Bob that's Robert De Niro you know and okay some of the stories are, are, are less pretty um how you acquired funding for the uh the Buffalo documentary or a, fil a short film that unfortunately yeah. never came to fruition I'm just like that's the dad from Psych that's so wrong <laughs> disgusting story but I had to include it because it really is indicative of Hollywood I mean it, it, it it's also it is, hilarious it, it is this beautiful spiritual feature film I wanted to make and how do I get <laughs> I um, you but, guys have to read the book to find out why yeah I, I mean say, I'm not gonna say it <laughs> you you have met everybody you've worked with everybody and um, and in fact you were you wrote very touchingly about your sort of long-term career and friendship with Jeff Conaway who it's, you know, it inspired so many people from very early in his career onwards, but sadly succumbed to his own addictions. Um, yeah, he was a lovely man. And I, it, it is funny how he came in and out of my life. In 1983, we did Behringer's together with Anita Morris filling out the love triangle. Mm. And then um, we did uh, a film with Adam Erfkin, Tale of Two Sisters. Two sisters, we did yeah. together. Yeah, and then we ended up on Babylon 5 together. So that spans, that spans 20... 20 years at least so mm. yeah um but i i obviously I'm, I'm i'm moving on to the babylon 5 stuff i'm just not going to be able yeah. to contain myself but um but your relationships as well i mean the long-standing relationship you have with europe um and and not least some of its most premier and, and established bachelors is that uh, it goes back but you're very honest about some of your more negative relationships in, including one that you said was just very toxic for the pair, pair of you um with uh the braveheart star god i'm so crap with names i want to say angus yeah yeah um and but the way you wrote about that i mean you know, Susan Ivanova was, was a strong woman and she stood up for herself and I didn't come across Babylon 5 until I was at university, but I was so inspired by her and I know so many people who love science fiction and chose the careers they chose despite being male-dominated because they had role models like her to look up to. But there must be women, you know, who are not faced with life and death decisions who are reading those passages in a book going, really? Her? Yeah, and I was and I was doing Babylon Five when I lived with him, when he lived with me, I should say. <laughs> yeah, so it, it's it's it is interesting playing this heroic, strong, um, very decisive character, and then coming home every day saying, "What am I doing?" You know, it, it it. I think everything influences your life for the good and the bad, and and I don't believe that there is a. Uh, 100% negativity even in negative relationships because of what you learn and how you grow from it and also what you your expectations of the next time around mm. um, and, and what you will and will not put up with and what you also believe that you deserve and and you know part of life is the floundering it is the fishing it is the sticking your neck out and, and saying oh I didn't like that it's the trying of flavors it's the, you know the yeah. whole experience and so 
it, it's satisfying for me, and I think that's why when people say, I can't believe you wrote that, you know, oh my God, it's so shocking, mm. blah, blah. Well, for me, I'm over it. Mm. I'm done, you know. I'm, You've come out done. the other side stronger. Yeah, it, so it's absolutely cathartic. It might be shocking for you guys to read it, and it may be shocking for, you know, people to read these excerpts or these experiences, but for me, I've dealt with it. Mm. If I hadn't have dealt with it and come out the other end, I wouldn't be writing about it. You know, I have to have something to be able to teach from. So it's, well, it's, it's, you know, it's not a midway catharsis. It's, it's, it's more of a looking back at that woman thinking, God, I wish I was the person today. Yeah. Because, but I couldn't be, you know, yeah. you can't be who you are at 40 when you were 20. And, and that's why when everybody says, you know, youth is wasted on the young, I, I don't, I wouldn't want to be 20 again. Mm. You know, uh, I, there's nothing, I like, you know, this, this this life experience, no matter how painful it was, no matter how horrific it was, it made me who I am today. And, and that's, you know, somebody that can maybe help other people with what I've been through. So there's nothing wrong with I am. Um, I noticed on your Twitter feed, I think, that your book is available as an audiobook, and that yeah, you... Yeah, finally, after all this time. Yeah. Well, actually, I was just going to say, like, were there any bits that, while you're reading them aloud... Yes, I... Yes. Did, were the, there must have been some moments where I, I, I cried I cried uh, during uh, my brother dying yeah I cried and I, and I I cried a couple of times actually I had to stop mm. I think it's pretty easy to, if, if someone's listening to the the audiobook I think they'll know when I choked up because I don't think I don't know how they edited it I haven't heard it yeah but uh, but yeah it was not easy <laughs> no that must have been strange it was weird it was surreal because you're reading this and I I felt sorry for that little girl isn't that weird I, I didn't I, I didn't really say wow that's me I I felt I just felt like I wanted to give that little girl a hug and I thought, it'll, it'll all turn out okay <laughs> that's the little me you know and, it's a very surreal thing when you're reading it's the same thing as it's funny because people always say oh don't you get angry when you watch movies and you see all the, uh, you know, the things that go wrong, like, uh, you know, if it doesn't match or there's, you know, consistency that yeah. whatever. Um, and I always get so caught up in the stories that even if it's me playing a character, I can still get moved. It's like the, the, the scene in Babylon 5 where Marcus has died and I'm crying oh. with Richard Biggs, you know. And, and when I watch that, I get teary. It's not, it's not because I'm... I'm watching my acting, it's because I'm thinking, how oh, sad! He just died! <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, so, I don't think people understand that, you know, I'm not one of these people that watch and go, oh, my makeup doesn't look good, or gee, no, I, I get into the story and say, oh, God, she should have kissed, she should have loved him! Yeah! yeah. Oh, like, no! It's, yeah. Well, okay, we're, so, we're there, and I mean, Babylon 5 is just... It's obviously still a huge part of your life. I didn't come across it till I was at uni and a friend of mine, Beth, lent me uh, the first season box set and um, and I was totally intrigued. It, it, it obviously had an overlying arc, you know, that was going to play out. When I put on se episode one of season two, I was just like, hey, hang on, they've swapped the main guy. What's, <laughs> yeah. what's, what's going on here? This is... It's a whole different show and then within about five minutes, I think I was equally gripped in a, in, in a different way. But I mean... You made that. You were there. You ruled. The, you know Babylon Five. People would scuttle out of your way. When, you know if you if you didn't have a coffee in hand. I mean, what was it like? It was wonderful. It was it was it was probably one of the best experiences of my thirty year career because we really really 
were these little underdogs sitting in this crappy studio in Sun Valley, California, yeah. and everybody thought we would fail, so we were the little train, you know, and um, we had no idea that we were even successful over the pond until we came to England, and it was phenomenal. We, finally, somebody got it, you yeah. know, uh, because they knew Doctor Who and, and Red Dwarf, and, you know, the, it was it was a country that got sci-fi, but you have to understand, back in the, in the you know, early mid-90s when we were on, sci-fi was not that popular in America. Mm. I mean, it wasn't until Battlestar Galactica, the, the re new one, mm. and all that came that it was cool and buffy and all that stuff. Yeah. But we were, we were these, we were just these weirdos that were making this show that nobody got until uh, it started to catch on and real diehard sci-fi fans started to appreciate the writing and the acting. And, and it doesn't reset. At the end of every episode, it yeah. carries forward. And I mean, exactly. for, it's, it's, yeah. for those of us who grew up on Trek, that was in itself, like, they, you know, you'd have characters unexpectedly pregnant, you know, in an episode because they couldn't hide it anymore. But, yeah. um, but it wasn't, you know, you didn't expect any sort of overlying... Well, and, and it opened the door for the Game of Thrones mentality of saying this is an epic story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's, a, you know, people like to say that it was Casablanca in space, and I don't think so. I think it was a, it, it, it was almost more of a, uh, a soap in space, but a smart soap opera, mm. you know. I mean, it was a, a space opera. I mean, yeah. you had... A, a very Wagnerian opera. Mm. You know, you had this, you had these characters that came in and out, and of course, because uh, JMS had to deal with people coming and going, or, or you know, uh, you know, reasons to leave the series, he had to constantly adapt. Mm. Not getting the money for the fifth season meant that he had to jam four and five into one season. So all of these things led to a very organic, very heightened experience. And for me, I, it was just, uh, it was just amazing. I've never been on a set where um, everybody really loved each other. Uh, and if somebody was an arse, they got fired. <laughs> if somebody was a prima donna, they got sucked out of an airlock. Yeah. I mean, we didn't put up with stuff like that because yeah. we, we had to work, you know, so quickly and so succinctly. And we had half the budget that a normal Star Trek episode did. We made these shows for 750 grand an episode, I think, something mm. like that. I mean, crazy. They were spending over 2 million an episode. Um, and we worked... A very very clean 12 and a half hours a day 13 mm. hours a day except for the aliens that were working a few more hours for makeup but because of that you really had to know your stuff you had to know your lines you had to get in and get out and and you had to get along and, and we did genuinely like each other I mean I still hang out with with you know Mira and Andrea and Pat Tommen I mean these are my friends I mean um, yeah I, I, I know that in um I know that you did uh, an album together the the B5s yeah. Um, they just re-released it with two songs that were yeah, um, re dedicated in, to the cast members that have passed, yeah. Yeah, and, and it, it, to be honest, I, I mean, it, it, that more than anything is an indicator of how much time has gone by. Like, it's it's surprising how many how many of the stars ha, ha, have now, you know, been, yeah, been taken the, from we, us. We had dinner with Richard Biggs' widow, Laurie Biggs, and... Uh, just a couple weeks before I came to London, we had we all had dinner with Pat Tomlin and Laurie and and uh, Bill Moomy and his wife and um, boy, he seems uh, like the best crack Bill yeah, Moomy. But, but the kids were like teenagers. <laughs> when teenagers, did that happen? But, wow, I thought wow, that's that's time really really does fly. Uh, I mean, one of the my my probably my favorite overall episode was the cobbled together season four finale. 
because I gather that they just found out that they didn't need to use the actual series finale and they decided to come up with an alternative and they project in the future. A hundred oh. years, a thousand years, a million years. Oh no, if you're talking about the very last episode that they, sh that they showed? No, no, the, that was shot a year before, wasn't it? Yeah, that's, see, I've never seen season, um, I've never seen three and four or five, but the, the last episode that I shot was yeah. the one that they showed as the very last episode. The and one that, in the that future was... where General Vonnevoe, yes. Yes, that was, yeah. The, the, in fact, the, the, the story does continue. There was um, a short story, wasn't there? Uh, oh God, wherever, I've got the name written down here. Uh, um, Space, Time and the Incurable Romantic. Okay. Um, I was just wondering if you if you knew that there was a, a continuation um, called Space Time and the Incurable Romantic, and it's no, is that fan fiction. No, it was written by oh, I'm going to say his name wrong, but Joe Strazinski. Well, that's the creator of Babylon Five. Uh, JMS is Joe Strazinski. Yeah, he he wrote this because he always wanted to write what he would have liked for Marcus and, and never got the chance to. And it's set sort of 300 years in the future. They finally found a way to fix that machine that... Oh, spoiler alert, by the way, people. 20-year-old spoiler alerts coming up here. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they, they finally found a way of like fixing the machine that sucked out all of Marcus's life. And he comes to, but he's set 300 years in the future. Everyone he knows has died. So he basically, he's got this, they've set this huge amount of money, you know, that um, Delenn and uh, Ivanova had like put in his name and obviously it's accumulated interest and he spends every penny on it buying a spaceship, a small colony planet in the middle of nowhere and setting it up so that no one will ever find it. And then he clones Ivanova using like her hair and some timestamp memories so that when she wakes up, she thinks she's Ivanova. He crashes the spaceship into this little planet and it like ends knowing that they're going to spend their time together. So I'm stuck with Jason Carter on a, on a, uh, on an island. Is yeah. What you're saying. Basically. Yeah. It must, I mean, it, it sounds like torture to me. Um, <clears throat> That's an interesting, and I've I've heard I've heard tales of that story before, but uh, wow! It, it, I mean, it ends yeah. well for Marcus, but I was never entirely sure what Ivanova would make of it. What's the benefit of it? Yeah. Oh God, that's funny. Um, but do you have any favorite ep episodes um, or quotes from the series? You know, I I always. Uh, I enjoyed the ones where I had stuff to do, so that would be, you know, the the the, the purple green drowsy episode, and the um, I I loved the whole end of it, you know. Where, mm. I mean, for me, mm. my death and and his death, and because it was you know some dramatic acting as opposed to just parking ships and CNCs, so. <laughs> the common everyday acting exactly. Yeah. <laughs> And of course, you uh, you got an unexpected comedic turn in Acts of Sacrifice. Yeah, that was actually that was a lot of fun, and the actors were so good. You looked I mean, demented. We, we we had so many wonderful guest stars on that show. I have to say that it's just it's when I look back on it. I mean, Michael York, you know, uh, Arthur, of so, yeah. I mean, you know, it was just it was wonderful. 
And uh, and obviously yeah. you got to to play things that you just wouldn't get in a reg you know in a procedural or a cop show or something you know and some of the uh, it's hard to describe to someone when you're describing Babylon Five and you bring up all the big arcs and it's good versus evil and there's angels and demons and and then you go oh yeah but there's also this like Jewish lady whose father's died and it's really sad and she's got no family left yeah. and you know there's a captain whose wife was like. She might be dead, but she yeah, might have been kidnapped by shadows, you know? <laughs> yeah, that whole thing with the, with the, uh, the two wives and the, and the this and that, and then the, the Melissa Gilbert coming in, and, you know, that, that, uh, that got a little confusing for me too, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> but they were very consistent with Susan. She was always miserable. Well, you know, I, I think it was just the, not a matter, I think it was just... At first, in the beginning, she was the new kid on the block, and she had to act like that. Everybody, you know, so that uh, that was why she had a pole over her butt. And then later on, her humor started to come through. But she, I don't think she was ever really comfortable because she was the youngest lieutenant commander. I mean, at, at that point, and she was always trying to prove herself. And as far as her love life was, clearly she was uh, undecided sexually. So she yeah. was, you know, possibly a. I mean, how do you describe a latent telepath, bisexual Russian Jewish commander? I mean, you don't. Claudia <laughs> Christian, it's obvious. <laughs> yeah, she had some issues, but uh, but I I think um, she was one of my favorite characters to play because I just thought the way that it was written um, started to encompass my a bit of my personality and humor as well because mm. Joe observed all of us, and yeah. so all of our characters. Um, there was a bit of Richard Biggs in Dr. Franklin, you know, there was a bit of, of Sheridan, you know, a little bit, a little bit of Bruce Boxleitner, his cockiness in there, a little mm. bit of his sensitivity. And I think Joe found a way to tap into all these reserves of the actors that, um, were quite lovely. I mean, you can't, you have to be really stupid to think that there wasn't something yeah. in, in the lens that was part of Mira and her, her, her tragic, uh, you know, Balkan, <laughs> upbringing and the war and everything yeah. and what she had been through personally definitely showed, showed and then you know the land. And, and of course she could play that she was fantastic. passionate about those things and peter jurassic brought a humanity to because peter Londo. jurassic is one of the most humane beautiful souls you'll ever meet well i mean i hope it's him yeah. otherwise i have very <laughs> iffy feelings about a serial killer genocidic king I'm you know kidding. you know i mean he's probably one of the nicest men you'd ever meet in your life and so you know it, it was just this magical combination of people great writers uh, great writer uh, and then you know the few, the few writers that filled in with Joe but mostly Joe mm. obviously um, and an extraordinary cast an extraordinary guest cast and an extraordinary crew and it was just this weird kismity great four or five years that uh that I am very grateful to have been part of because it will, it stands up even today. Mm, yeah, no, and a new a new generation of sci fi fan are, are introduced I, to I, it I, every. Dressed up as a <laughs> 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 no, Well, our, our our last thing, and then I, I promise I'll let you get back to your real life. Um, your. You're famous for your interactions with your fan base and um, how honest you've always been, how open you've always been, despite the fact that you have been attacked by several quite crazed individuals, oh, including one who clearly didn't remember shooting you a, a decade later, yeah. which I, I wouldn't have thought is the sort of incident you'd rapidly put in the back of your mind. Um, yeah. And you actually held your own 
con. You you did your own. I'm a, I'm a con goer. Um, and you held your very own one in in 2011. And it, people seem to people are always asking if there's more, if there are new ones. So it seems to be well, very popular. The, the irony of that, of course, is that you know it, it it sounded like it was a really good idea, and then um, right in the middle of uh, that weekend, the London riots began and the bicycle race. So out of the few hundred people that were going to show up, um, the majority of them canceled. So we had an, we had about 25 media guests and maybe 40 <laughs> guests. So the media guests stopped, started leaving, of course. I didn't blame them because mm. they weren't going to make any money. Um, but we had these this core group of fans that were so sweet and so loyal staying there. But the funny thing is, is that you know we sold a couple hundred tickets, but nobody—they uh, were all afraid to to fly there because they heard about these riots. And I kept saying, "We're at Heathrow. <laughs> Nothing's gonna it's, happen. It's not London. It's no, actually it's not, quite it's different. Not, it's, yeah, it's really safe, but nobody believed me. So it was a very—it it took me nine months to throw that convention. It was like having a baby, and it wasn't. It, I have to say, at the end of the day, it was. Uh, it was. It, you know, it was an interesting experience, but I would never do it again. It was so much work, mm. and I and I, I, you know, I just uh, I I had these you know pipe dreams of being able to give lots of money to charities and do all this stuff, and then at the end of the day, we were struggling to, you know, to pay Break the hotel even. and everything. Yeah. So it was, you know, but the fans were once again unbelievably supportive, and uh, and you know there were people that came out of the woodwork and started selling, uh, you know, memorabilia and stuff to help, and it was just. They're they're just the most amazing people I've ever met in my life, and I'm so grateful to have been part of that community because I've never met people who are that enthusiastic about something. I mean, you can have soap opera fans and you can have film fans, but sci-fi fans are diehards. Yeah. They are just diehards, and and. You'll and, still be meeting the same fifteen of us in in the next twenty years, you know. <laughs> well, you but you would also think that somebody who played this 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 character that so many people look up to and with you know this hero this this even though they knew that my character was fallible they really hoped to think that I am Ivanova for me to, you know Ivanova so for me to come out and write this book and say that wow I'm really more than fallible yeah. um, and have people not turn against me actually have them say wow we still love you and we're yeah. gonna help you with, you know the next phase of your life and that's what they've been doing I mean people have been donating to the C3 foundation to make this documentary and these are people who don't even have the impetus for it you know it's not mm. like um, I'm helping them directly but they mm. know what I'm doing with other people so every phase you do in your in your career it seems like they they support you and I you know and I, I would like to give them the same amount of support that they've given me so mm. I'm trying my best to help people now. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's just a, a brilliant place to uh, to end. And I, as one of your fans, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. It's been such a delight reading your book, and I've heartily recommended it to people. I've never read uh, a, a star autobiography quite like it before. Um, there are good bits in the book as well. I, I just want to reassure people. <laughs> it's, it's not all a downer. She comes across as a very happy person. <laughs> Um, what's what's coming up next? When do we get to look forward to seeing you on our small screens again? Um, or our big screens, for that matter. I did a couple of low-budget films before I left the States. Um, uh, I did um, 
one called Watercolor Postcards, which I think is going to festivals right now. Uh, the Wrong Woman I did with um, uh, the lovely Danica. Oh, God, I'm forgetting her last name right now. She's the maths expert from Wonder Years. Danica. Oh, Keller. Uh, Keller. Yes. Yes, Danica Keller. Lovely, lovely woman. She, um, I did a film with her before I left L.A., uh, but most importantly, right now, I'm concentrating on um, Babylon Confidential, which is the book I wrote. Uh, they're doing a little push now for um, the audiobook and for the the actual um, version that's out now. And, of course, my documentary, which is One Little Pill. So you can find me on Facebook under One Little Pill or The Sinclair Method or Babylon Confidential or Claudia Christian's Fan page. <laughs> you can also go to the c3foundation.org. Um, uh, to learn more about what I'm doing right now. And that's really uh, what I'm focused on. So um, that's the next phase of my life. I don't know what's coming up after that. <laughs> well, we wish you well with it. And again, thank you so much. Thank you very much.